Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Greetings to you. This is episode 279. We're recording this episode live on April 6th, 2023. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, great to be back. I was a bit thinking about Blake taking my seat, so I couldn't let him do it two weeks in a row. Could, couldn't let Blake <laughs> keep that seat warm too much, right? Too- hey, we got a, we do have a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how wearable brain devices will challenge our mental privacy. We're also going to answer some questions from the community on visiting real-world locations for user research, neurodivergent researchers, and onboarding a new person to a project. Let's get into some programming notes before we get into anything first. First thing I'd like to talk about is, hey, by the way, we have coverage from the Healthcare Symposium, from the Human Factors Neurogonomic Society International Symposium on Healthcare and Human Factors. Okay, that's a long name. We have coverage on it. It's coming out. We are just waiting on some final release forms for everyone to be okay with the final releases. We do have one piece of coverage out already, and that is Safe and Effective with Heidi Merzad. And if you're unaware, we have just recently announced Safe and Effective Medical Human Factors, a new podcast, part of the Human Factors Podcast Network, the Human Factors Cast Network of Podcasts. It's going to be a great show. Heidi and I have been working on this thing for months, years, and so be on the lookout for that. Some of the other healthcare symposium coverage you can look forward to talking about the workshops that happened there. We check in with the student design competition winners and navigating challenges in human factors in healthcare. And we also do some conference and journal updates with some old friends of the pod. But Barry, I am dying to know what's going on over at 12. So at 12.02 live is the interview with Jenny Ratliff, the people hacker who talks to me about her career in so basically social engineering, pen testing, and how she got into it all the way from the early days, all the way through to what she's doing now, being a world-renowned keynote speaker and TED Talker. Her new book has, ju- has been released and is available on Amazon and is actually a really good read. We get into all of that. But coming up on Monday is a, an interview talking about naturalistic decision-making with Rob Hutton. So that is going to go live on Monday and th- that is also thoroughly recommended. Ooh, looking forward to that one. All right. We know why you're here. You're here for the news. So let's get into it. Yes, that's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Mr. Barry Kirby, what do we have this week? So this week we're talking about wearable brain devices that will challenge our mental privacy. So the rise of brain tracking devices in the form of earbuds, smartwatches, headbands, sleep aids, and even tattoos could revolutionize healthcare and transform our lives, according to this article in Scientific American. The possibilities are endless, from improving our ability to meditate, focus, and communicate, to offering personalized treatments for depression, epilepsy, and cognitive decline. However, the proliferation of these devices also poses risks to mental privacy, freedom of thought, and self-determination. Employers increasingly seek out neural data to track worker fatigue levels, and personality traits, and there are also reports of Chinese employees being sent home. Their brain metrics are less than optimal. Governments also seek to access our brains, raising questions about individual privacy and autonomy. As brain wearables advance alongside artificial intelligence, the line between human agency and machine intervention is becoming blurred, prompting concerns about the offloading of mental tasks to AI and the erosion of independent thought. The article makes a call for action to ensure that neurotechnology revolution benefits humanity rather than leads us, rather than leading us into an Orwellian future of spying on our brains. It advocates for prudent vigilance, an open and honest debate about the risks and benefits of neurotechnology, and the preservation of individual cognitive liberties. Nick, what are your thoughts? Are you able to give us your own true thoughts? Are you being brain hacked by AI just to tell us what the what technology wants us to think? That one. So here's, yes, we do need to be careful here. And I think that's the bottom line. Yes, let's be careful. I am still dubious about brain computer interface technology as it stands today. I'm, I'm not denying that it will be a thing in the future. And I'm still 
especially dubious of the ones that are connected to online systems that are tracking information and the sending and receiving of data from your brain to your brain. It's all very, what is this going to do? Is it going to be very similar to how we treated the AI uprise just in the last couple months here? I think this article brings up some really good points. I think that it's alarmist in a lot of ways, but maybe we can actually think ahead of the curve when it comes to brain-computer interfaces, unlike we did with AI. That is a potential thing here that we can look at. AI rose very quickly, and there's a lot of ethical privacy concerns when it comes to AI. Are we going to have those same questions when it comes to BCIs as they are eventually more mainstream? That's a question I have. I think there are some interesting, just high-level things that we can point to like once we start communicating brain to brain, the speed at which we communicate right now is through verbal communication. You and I, thousands of miles apart, but we are communicating right now. Mm -hmm. What happens if I can communicate with your brain in such a fast way that we don't even need to have a physical conversation? That information can be transferred in a millisecond. And then if we're just transferring information back and forth, where does my brain end and yours begin? And if we're doing that with not just each other, but everybody else that we're interconnected with, and they're doing it with everybody else that they're connected with, where does our brain start and end? And where does the hive mind begin? These are like some really high level, scary things to think about. But that's just my initial thoughts. Barry, where are you at with all of this? It just shows that we've spoken about brain HCI or AI's before, even though we couldn't necessarily find which episode it was. But, uh, but I've said on a more than one occasion that we've spoken about before in the context of Elon Musk doing, because he was trying to drive a lot of this at least you know, 12 months ago, whatever. And we'd said around, I'm quite up for the idea of BCIs, but not if Elon's doing it, I don't want him in my head. But it just shows that we were joking around that to a certain extent, but it shows that technology must be getting developed in a more serious way because now people are concerned about it it's now got to a level where we must be i haven't seen it so i, I can't comment on it directly but the it must be getting to a level of maturity where people are like actually there's something here what's interesting about the scenario you just painted around passing that data between us one of the big things i've always been really aware of when de developing hcis is about is around mental workload and at the moment, you can manage your own mental workload that if somebody's giving you too much information, you can stop. Can you just wait a minute? Let me process what you've just told me. Or I, look, I'm getting lots of information coming in from lots of different sources. You can switch some screen. You can manage your, your inputs that way. If we're connected on that level, how do you switch it off? How do you possibly manage the flow of data? And how do you not just end up in a sort of wibbling mess on the floor? with all of the, the information coming through. Fundamentally, I think it's exciting. I think it's, if we, it's a, there's a balance here between policy and being terrified about what it's going to become. And then, and therefore, stopping the development in a way that we possibly don't anticipate with, un, unintended, with unintended consequence. But equally, the like the like we've like you alluded to the rise of AI. I'm still very I still don't think it's as big a deal as people is making it out because the way that we've described what it's doing at the moment, it's more about the the abuse of it than what the AI it's, itself does. And I think that this is a similar thing. I think the, it's a technology that needs to be managed. And so we'll see how it develops. I'm quite excited though. I want to comment on one of the things that you brought up here about communicating something and mental workload. This is a very interesting point because right now we are limited in the amount of information that we can send over. Like I said, I am communicating to you via verbal, via a verbal modality right now. Mm -hmm. If I was communicating to you through brain signals, Barry, I would not only be able to communicate ideas and thoughts, but I'd be able to communicate how I'm feeling about a certain thing. And so not only would I be able to but then I'd also be able to read things, right? I'd also be able to read how much your brain is taking in right now. And I'd be able to read whether or not I should push that information. And all this would happen in like a split second. So it's very interesting from that perspective where you're trying to think about 
all this communication piece. Again, we're looking at more of the abuse of this technology. And I think we should focus on that for the rest of this episode. But I do want to just mention that it's going to be a very interesting piece once we start communicating brain to brain. That's. But I, I guess there's a massive assumption here, which is something I'd like to drill into before we get into how it can be abused. Is How do you know that you think the same way as I do? Because I know that we're having this discussion now and I'm communicating my thoughts, but I'm also reading the notes that are going on either side, keeping an eye on the, the comments that people are making o- online. And so how do you know that the bit that you're chiming into with this brain interface is the bit that you actually want to hear? You could be hearing about also about the fact that maybe I need to take a drink or at something at some point, and that's got nothing to do with what it is that we're trying to communicate. How are we meant to monitor and manage the information and how it flows. Do you just get a splurge of everything? I, this is where I think we don't necessarily, we need a better understanding of the technology in order to better understand what the impact is. Because if it's just the fact that it's almost a, a Vulcan mind meld type thing, just bring the Star Trek reference there, where you're, you're literally just sharing the experiences and as you say, emotion and all that sort of stuff, that's a very, very different pro- proposition to almost telepathy, a telepathic conversation. Because even in telepathic conversation, you're still monitoring what's going on in your head. So yeah, is this an all or nothing technology, which I think will have a big impact on this idea of privacy? Yeah, I agree. I want to get into some social thoughts here because there's some interesting points that some of our patrons and lab members have made on this. So I want to let's take this first point here by Alex. This is horrendously concerning. Is this being used to support staff or to be punitive? Is PTO offered to those who are sent home? And this is with respect to the Chinese employees being sent home if brain metrics are less than optimal. And I think this is an interesting question because these are metrics that we have now. If we can hook, put some brainwave reading device on people's heads, or even we can measure physiological data right now that is another metric to track against. What is that threshold? What does all this mean? I don't think in China that they are getting PTO for this. This is probably a performance-related thing. You must maintain a certain level of performance on this job. Is that right? Is that fair? No, but I think that is what's going on in this case. Barry, sound off. Yeah, I think the, again, it's ironic because ju- just this week I've been talking around well-being and doing a, helping a research study by, do, by being interviewed on this. And it's how much is punitive how much is supportive? Because if you know that your staff are stressed out, and this could be a way of understanding their level of stress, because if you if you're not looking after an employee's well being, which I, which is my perspective from a, as a small business owner, then if I can look after my staff's well being, then actually they're better on the job. If they if we know that the you're you've got the optimum amount of stress level, you've got the right sort of driver, you're feeling good in yourself, everything's great at home, you're going to perform on your job. Brilliant. That that that's in my interest to do, whereas larger businesses don't necessarily take that the same sort of approach. And so I think this idea of could it be supportive or is it punitive is almost, is basically doubt what is that company driver? Is it bums on seats or every hour on the hour at the right level of optimization? And what happens if if they are sending you home? Is there then somebody waiting in the wings who is just on autumn piece and coming in? So yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. And different companies and different societies will take different approaches. Yeah, let's let's just look at some of the companies that are trying to develop this technology, right? We mentioned Neuralink already, but you also have major tech companies like Meta, Snap, Microsoft, Apple. They are all looking into this type of technology, which is scary when you think about all the data that they already have access to. Can you pair that up? I don't know. I'd imagine you could and find some really interesting things about individuals based on their brain signals. And that, again, triggers some privacy concerns. What can you glean from? You can already glean a lot of information about somebody based on the trackers that are on websites and the programs that you use. And there's a lot of data already out there. And that aggregation of data is what gives you away, not necessarily any individual one individual piece. It's the sharing of that information across all these things. So if you are sharing brain thoughts with advertisers, imagine that, then you've thought about a very small addition to your kitchen. And now you're seeing ads all over the place 
for that product because you had one little thought about it. That's the kind of the danger that we're in here. These targeted ads are one aspect of it, but there are also larger concerns with respect to things like freedom of thought. And that's a really big one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I always have a wry grin when we talk about targeted ads, because actually I think targeted ads are a good idea because when you, if you can have something that, that is focused around what it is that you're actually looking for, in principle, why do I want to see adverts around things that I'm not looking for? However, it is that whole piece around how did they get that information in the first place, which is the sneaky bit around it. And this is very much around that, isn't it? Because it's not only have you been, th what have you been thinking about, but it's that only, well, is it unintended? Might, might be intended. It's, the in it's that consequence of those people around you knowing that you've been thinking about whatever it is. So if you're sat there going, oh, I just want a new car, then suddenly it comes up in front of your partner that you want a new car and you can't afford that type of thing. Could even be worse than a new car. And that, that's a problem. But let's look at the positives of this to a certain extent as well, is if we have, I think we've spoken, again, we've spoken on, the, on this podcast before around really our understanding of mental health and mental health issues is still woefully almost stone age in the way that we deal with it. If we can use these BCIs to better understand mental health, then that's got to be a good thing. And also just revolutionize healthcare as a whole. If, if it's this understand, if we can get a better understanding of not only what is wrong, what people, what people's symptoms are and that type of thing, then surely that, that could make the healthcare domain a lot more reactive and give healthcare professionals a lot better insights into what is not only what people are saying that is wrong with them, but what is actually wrong. Yeah, I think that's true. That is true. But we all have, so here's where I'm at with this. We all have intrusive thoughts. We don't act on those impulses many times. I should oh, say many I, times. I was going to say, I've seen the amount of Star Wars stuff behind you. Okay. Okay, fine. Sure. So look, we all have in, intrusive thoughts. Yes. And if I'm sitting in a therapist's office or a doctor's office, and I have a thought about, am I going to die? Mm -hmm. I might as well just end it now. Very fleeting I'm not suicidal in any way, but that's just a thought. Oh, I have six months to live. Why, why am I bought? And that, that flags them to say this person needs a little bit extra mental assistance. That could be true. We need to find what that threshold is for those types of intrusive thoughts. And we need to protect people from feeling like they can feel those intrusive thoughts or thoughts that are not acted upon. Because there is this concept of freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. Are you think about things without being prompted sometimes? Mm -hmm. And here's a dramatic example. Overthrowing the government, right? Is that going to be illegal to think about that? What if it was just a fleeting thought? And it just, it, you're not serious about it. You're not going to act on it. I'm getting us into some really dicey territory here in terms of content. But I'm just using this as an example, because what if you have these weird thoughts? I, I don't even want to give examples. Yeah. But so that they don't even have to be fleeting thoughts. You can still believe some things and not act upon them. So you might, there might be certain people that you just don't like, but doesn't mean you go into their face and say, I don't like you, blah, 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 blah. You, you manage the situation accordingly. And if you cannot put your politicians full stop, very good, whether you support them or not, it doesn't matter what party they're on or all that sort of stuff, but politicians generally manage the way they interface with people all of the time. And if you don't have the ability to put them barriers in place, then maybe you'd be better, you'd be better at electing representatives who knew, but, but that would be really interesting. But then also the, the companies that you're working with companies that you're engaged with. Again, with the social thoughts, Alex highlighted that there's companies out there that already incentivize wearables and get you to send your data to their internal systems. So if you added 5,000 steps to your watch this month, you get gift cards in, in the UK, and I don't that probably be out in the US as well. But there are health insurance companies that if you go to the gym and you've, you your watch sends in the data to show that you've done a certain amount of exercise a month, you get cheaper health insurance. So it, it will list also where does the boundary stop there in terms of that stuff coming that way? Where does it start? Where does it stop? What point, you mentioned earlier about 
us being able to think and then use a single line of communication, i.e. voice, body language as well, you could argue. But you get the opportunity to think about what you need to say before you say it. And sometimes I find it very useful to think about it before I say it because I tend to drop myself in, into awkward situations. So the ability to reflect is a really good thing. If you had no filter between that, the dangers there, I, yes, I do. it doesn't serve. It'd be very dangerous. And Alex also bringing up in the chat, thank you for mentioning intrusive thoughts and also that this could be very dangerous for people with severe mental illness because there's a lot going on in everybody's heads. And when we look at people with severe mental illness, that can definitely be challenging to experience some of those thoughts when, again, maybe not going to act upon them or maybe the intent is there to act upon them. And how do you tell what the intent is behind somebody when they want to do or act upon a certain thought. This, I think, really highlights the concerns around the right to protect somebody's thoughts as it relates to brain-computer interfaces. How do you weed that noise out from the intent if you are using it to control something, right? You are a factory worker and you are attempting to harmonize with some robotic component within the factory and you are controlling it via your brain, how does it parse out all of the other stuff that's going on in that brain as you are trying to control that thing? Is it also monitoring and downloading that data and parsing that data and understanding what about you is going on in that moment? If you're distracted, if you're thinking about things at home and you're at work, is that going to impact your ability to communicate via BCI with that robotic arm? I think all this really comes down to is the, the need for brain-computer interface bill of rights, if you will. I think there's like this AI bill of rights that everyone's talking about, and I think we need something similar for brain data because these are the issues that arise when you start to think about everything that's being collected and everything that could potentially be misconstrued because it's a data signal coming from your brain. So what happens then with your BCI Bill of Rights coming in right now and then restricting the technology development because you're almost neutering it before it gets there. So before we actually understand what the capability is actually about, you're already saying no. Do you think that's a problem? Do you think that's an issue that, that, that we might not? I think it's the right approach. I think we should have done that with AI. There's been a massive pause, like just use AI as an example. There's been a massive yep. call for a pause from a lot of top AI developers. And I think a lot of this is probably competitive reasons. Yeah, he is so far ahead of them that they need six months to catch up. But there's still this call for a pause. And the reason cited for this pause is that we need to think about the, impl the implications of artificial intelligence before we start implementing it everywhere. I think thinking about these problems or at least defining the boundaries and I don't think that would necessarily limit the technology, Barry. I really don't. Because if we establish we all have freedom of thought and we cannot, we that is a right mm -hmm. that we cannot overstep. Treat it like guns in the U.S. We, you have more protections than example. women's choice, <laughs> right? No, I'm just saying. Think about it that way, right? Because that is how we need to think about our freedom to think what we want to think. and have that be fed into malicious actors or having some sort of consequence for having intrusive thoughts or having a mental illness in your head because you've thought something. There's, there, I think establishing those boundaries ahead of time is good because then it allows us to put those limitations on the devices that we're building and it forces us to think about how these devices are going to interact with us 
given those rights that we want to establish. So, so I think it's the right way to go. So just playing devil's advocate. Sure. I largely agree with you. Given that we don't actually know what, what construes a thought legally, so what is a thought and what gives you a basis for an actual thought as opposed to a fleeting thought as opposed to a grounded thought or are there different types of thoughts and how is it represented? How is it actually stored in the brain? How can you prove that you had a thought in the first place? All them sort of issues, what is the definition of a thought? There's a whole, because this technology, I still don't think, or our understanding of how this technology works, I feel could just... With the best will in the world, I've seen lawmakers and policymakers, we, and we've spoken about this before, in our national institutions who know nothing about what they're talking about, have no, I was going to say intelligence, that's probably the wrong word, or maybe the right word, but you've seen the way that they, they interviewed the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and people like that with just inane questioning. Imagine with something like this, them trying to create policy around something they truly don't understand and just want a political point score. That will kill off any benefits that we've described tonight around the ability to treat people's mental and physical health in a better way, the better way to do some of that. So I think you're absolutely right. There is got to be some, there's got to be some protections, some, something around that. I just don't know. I don't think that we are mature enough to articulate it. If only we could access our own thoughts and but I jest, but there are also risks when it comes to these types of things, too, because even if we say we establish a hard boundary to say these types of thoughts we store behind secure data centers that should not be accessed for malicious purposes, then you introduce this whole cybersecurity issue of what happens if a malicious actor actually gets into those data stores and processes those thoughts that are we've established should not be public and is should we then as a society really western society i should say should we determine that all these thoughts cannot be stored and i think that is the right way to go certain thoughts and you're right categorize the thoughts and then certain thoughts should not be stored in a data center anywhere because that would be trouble i think at least it would introduce a lot of privacy concerns it would get rid of the Issues when you think about hacking or malicious use, especially, well, hacking the data centers, at least where that information is stored. I think there's a lot to think about here, pun intended, but I really like you're thinking about all these major tech companies. They want your data for various reasons. And we bring up the different applications that this could play in healthcare. And I think if we treated it very similarly to how we treat health data, Without the breaches. I was going to say, yeah, okay. <laughs> without the breaches. And that's always going to be an issue. I don't know what else to do about that other than... No, but it, but again, we don't stop building cars because of, because of the risk of car theft. We don't stop, we don't stop building supermarkets because of, the, because of the risk of shoplifting. I think it's absolutely something we need to be aware of and um, cognizant of and engineer for. It should be something that is part and parcel of our development. But I also think we don't, stop developing just because of the risk of otherwise you'll never fix it it'll never get there i think the, again the interesting thing about we spent a lot of time thinking about what happens if these thoughts get out in the public and that type of thing but actually i think there's a really interesting human factors issues here around how do we how do you turn it on and off how do you what are the processes involved in communicating establishing one-to-one -one communication not only between people but actually as you said if you're controlling something how does that happen because not only, I mean, you use the example of a remote arm. What about an airplane? How could, you know, if you're flying something, I was, going to, I was going to say a fast jet, but even just a passenger airline or something, freight thing, and you're, we talk about the almost intrusive thoughts. So you're flying along going, and then you oh, that's a pretty old flat dead. What are the, because I can't stay, you can tell just by the way I talk, I rarely stay on track with one thought process from start to finish. How do you, the interesting bit about developing software that is going to deal with that is going to be incredible. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right. There are plenty of domains in which this could be mission critical. You have military applications. Mm. Don't shoot. Like, I'm just saying yeah. this as a weapon of war could be really dangerous. You also have government uses where it could really 
raise some important ethical privacy concerns when it comes to individual rights? Are we allowed access to our public servants, elected officials? Are we allowed access to their thoughts? Or do they have that freedom too? Should they have that freedom? These are all questions that we should be thinking about. What, oh, what, just with the government, just what about your yeah. justice system? And your yes. person sits there. Are you telling the truth? Let's just hook you up and find out. Let's hook you up and find out. And then there's also the exacerbation of some of these inequalities that exist right now in society. You could have further discrimination based on how people think if that information is made public. Can you imagine a system that like shocks somebody every time they have a racist thought? I would love that personally, but like <laughs> you think about it, right? People hate to even say it, but people should be, they should have that freedom of thought. And that is what we're talking about here, right? We can't shock somebody every time they have a racist thought or every time they think about skinning a cat or something. These are things that should be, I hate to say even you should, but you should also have the freedom to think about, man, what would my life look like if I had a million dollars? Something completely innocuous, some, mm -hmm. something completely unrealistic. But at the same time, it's you're not going to do anything with those well-intentioned thoughts. So why would you do anything with the negative thoughts as well? That's It's a very tricky, dicey question. And again, who has access to this? All this stuff is just insane, right? I can barely wrap my brain around it. I think I am experiencing some workload mm. overload here. <laughs> very be able to jack into your brain and just get them thought in a pure state and put them out. Exactly. A podcast can be communicated in half a second in the future. Barry, do you have any other closing thoughts on this article before we... Oh, I think bring this on. I can't wait to see how this develops. I think it's... Oof. Yes, it's scary. And we are... It's bit, again, it's analogous to the AI thing. We're on the brink of something that we don't necessarily understand. But isn't that exciting? Ah, I don't know. I'm down with the AI thing. But when it comes to getting in my brain and understanding my th thoughts... I'm a little more, and maybe that's just me. I don't know. How do you all think about it, though? That's, I want to know that. Thank you to our patrons and everyone for selecting our news topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at Scientific American for our news story. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. And also join us in our Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Oh, yes. Huge thank you, as always, to all of our patrons. But we especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, all access patrons like Michelle Tripp, patrons like you truly keep the show going. And uh, if we're going to read this dumb commercial, cue funky music. I don't have funky music. Hello, listeners. Do you love our podcast so much that you want to become more than fans? Perhaps fans with benefits? You can always support us on Patreon. Just a buck gets you in the door. But what exactly does your generous support on Patreon pay for, you ask? Allow me to enlighten you with all the nitty-gritty details. Firstly, it covers the monthly hosting fees. It takes cold, hard cash to keep our podcast accessible for your listening pleasure. Next up, annual website domain fees. Who knew websites? You have to pay for real estate, too, but it's necessary to keep our little corner of the internet up and running. Let's not forget about the annual website capability fees. Let's just say... We need some extra magic behind the scenes to keep things running smoothly for all you lovely listeners. Patreon also helps us pay for programs and automation behind the scenes. Yep, we like it fancy and efficient at the same time. And last but not certainly least, your support on Patreon helps us get products and services that help assist with our audio and video production because let's face it, we may love talking, but we also want it to sound as fancy and as polished as possible. And the cherry on top, we get to live stream to help us reach more people on different platforms. That's right. We're not just a one-platform wonder. So listeners, let's become fans with benefits and become a Patreon supporter now. Help us continue to produce the fun and informative podcast that you know and love. Trust me, we'll make it worth it. All right, let's get into the next part of the show. It came from... It came from... Yes, this is the part of the show we like to call It Came From. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, wherever you're watching, give us a like, thumbs up, whatever it is to help other people find this content. We have three up tonight. The first one here is from the user experience subreddit. They write, sorry, this one's by San Seb. They write, any user researchers here that regularly visit facilities or factories or shops to do street interviews? They write, 
Are there any user researchers who visit real-world locations for their research work? I want to learn about the experiences of people who conduct research outside of their offices, like in hospitals or factories. I feel tired of being confined to my home and want to know about the real-life experiences of people. Can anyone share their industry experiences and what their day-to-day -day work looks like? Barry, what are your thoughts on this question? Isn't that the day job? How can you be a user researcher and not actually go and talk to... I, I must be missing something because to answer the question, I go and talk to all my users, either where they're at or where I'm at. And that includes everything from people within across the defense industry and around and about. How could you do, how could you do all of that just sat in your own office? I don't understand. Okay. I understand. Please enlighten me. There, if you work in software, this is actually very easy to do. This is very easy to just get on a call with somebody who uses your product. It's very easy to send out a survey. This, what they are talking about, if you're unaware, is a contextual inquiry. It's fairly common in many domains or in ethnographic analysis, I think, yeah. is another way that, it, another name that it goes by. Anyway, this is fairly common, actually. And so seeing this question is really surprising, but this highlights for me the difference in some ways between user experience and human factors where some user experience researchers will go out and experience a product's lifecycle from start to finish, especially if it has other physical components to it, like using a device in conjunction with software. This is frequently done and you need to see it in context, which therefore context in contextual inquiry. I think this question seems really junior to me that they may have come into UX research from a, a design background or from another background that doesn't have that history in engineering or psychological mm -hmm. research. And so I, I do want to just highlight this because it seems like a fairly basic question. But Yes, this is something that you should be doing and you should be advocating within your company to do to go out and understand how the product is used, not just the product, but also the end to end life cycle of what a user is doing in their workflow that helps put the product that you are developing at in, into context with the rest of everything else. I don't know. You have any th other thoughts on that one, Barry? Uh, it's interesting because, again, the whole junior piece, I often find that it was, I got to visit more interesting things when I was a junior than when my career has evolved. I'm more now sending out other people to do it. I mean, for me, it's part of the job. It's part of the exciting bit of the job about where you get to go and see people actually doing their stuff. So yeah, if you're not doing that yet, then you yeah, just bang a drum, go and do it because it's where the fun lies. Yeah, agreed. All right. This next one here is from insatiable writer on the UX research subreddit, neurodivergent researchers advice. Hi, I'm a UX researcher recently diagnosed as neurodivergent. Any tips from fellow ND researchers, especially those with ADHD and or autism or strategies that have helped you in your work? Barry, you have a lot to say about this one. It, I think this is, it's really, it's really topical for us as a family because we are learning more and more about this and perhaps how it affects us. Now, I've mentioned this before, but generally as a family, we've home educated our children. And it's not until our eldest children have gone into mainstream or more mainstream education, university and stuff, that we've realized around level things with ADHD and other neurodivergent issues. And it's the fact that we see these as a problem, but actually for us, it's more about what are the super, what, what are the superpowers that they give you, which I think is more interesting. We always tend to talk about ADHD and autism. How do we cope with it? How do we, how do we try and make you normal again? And, and for me, that's just utter rubbish because, you know, the people who have ADHD or maybe somewhere on the autism scale, however we classify it, it just means that you've got slightly you've got different skills you've got different ways of thinking about it which actually give you different advantages because you process things in different ways so it's not for me it's not about how how we cope but i quite like the way that this has been been put is about how's it helped and for me it's about understanding and having a better understanding of really once you understand how this affects the way that people work and therefore what makes them work better 
then you can actually scope the work around how they work. And so if they're better at doing maybe some more analytical things, or they only work really well at a certain time of day or something like that, then then work to that, I, fundamentally, I call it work to the superpowers because everybody's got them. Everybody's got their own ways of working and the, it's just different flavors. But it is interesting around, I think now as well, that our understanding and viewpoints around ADHD, autism, and mental health in general is evolving actually more rapidly than I give it credit for because it isn't that long ago that we'd be looking down on ADHD with a certain level of disdain. Whereas now I think we are much more grown up in terms of recognizing what it is and, it, and that it's not a disability. It's a, it's a thing. It's an actual something. It's not something to be looked down on anymore. Nick, what do you think? I, speaking as someone diagnosed with ADHD, it comes in many flavors. There's the executive dysfunction, the distraction, the hyperfixation. They all come and go, and there's various cocktails of mixtures of all those things in people diagnosed with ADHD. And I think, like you said, Barry, use them to your advantage in whatever you're doing. For me, one of the things that I found out about myself is that I work most efficiently when I can block out distractions. So between the hours of 12 and 3 a.m., when there's no news cycles going on, there's no kid awake, my wife's asleep, I can solely focus on the things that I need to focus on. Now that to focus on time, and I'm fully aware that I focus and that hyper focus from 12 to 3 and get something done. There's also the distraction element. I experience a lot of this throughout the day where. Mm, you know, even in my day job where focusing on something like user interviews, that is really hard. So I try to record things if I can. When you're in a space where you can't record things like a classified space, it makes things very difficult. But having a dedicated note taker so I can focus more on things like the flow of the conversation rather than the content. I am aware of what's being said, but I'm not committing any of that to memory. So this is these are some of the tricks that I've picked up along the way that is a best practice to have a note taker but something like that where you are planning for the things in which you know are going to be more difficult for you or that actually like you said Barry are superpowers in some way like that hyperfixation and so planning for those types of things in the way that you plan your work is what i've found to be really helpful now i will mention anyone interested in this topic can go and look at the Reddit post further. There's a lot of really great advice in that thread, and I highly encourage you all to go look at that. Let's get into this last one here. This one is by Ava on the user experience subreddit. I'm a lead designer at a consultancy firm. I'm onboarding a new person to my project. What's your go-to way of doing? Hi, as a lead UXer, how do you efficiently onboard a new member to the team? I'm currently onboarding a new colleague to our project and I'm looking for some tips and advice to make it a smoother process. Barry, what do you think? So firstly, have a process that helps. And generally, if you're part of a larger company, HR will have a process. But just because you, the HR has a process to get them into the company doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best way of getting them onto your project or within your team. So I always still advocate that within a team and within a project have an onboarding process. And that should just be a an overview about what the project is. So if we're talking about a the project as per the question, then have a two or three slides on what the project is about. You can offload to anybody who joins a project and make sure you keep that updated. Have the key list of contacts up to date and available. This is where actually I find having an internet site for projects is really useful because you have an information page, FAQ type thing. And I do that for all projects, no matter how large or small they are. So that helps new people come on board. But fundamentally as well, it's never smooth because different people have different different needs, different wants. They're coming into different parts of the project. They'll have different anxieties. So when somebody joining a project new is going to be anxious about something, you're bound to be because you're stepping off into the unknown. Some people might be worried about the process. Some people might be worried about customers or whatever it is and the imposter syndrome, all that sort of stuff. So whilst you have your process there, don't forget the person. Talk to them all the way through it. Certainly within the first two weeks is generally make sure you have constant catch-ups with them. Ask them how it's going and ask them what they think they need to be able to do stuff. And then the last bit I we always try to do is write it down. At the end of their onboarding, try and get them to write down what they thought went well, what they thought 
didn't and include that in and use that feedback for the next person because you will you just enrich in that process nick how do you do it i'm actually going to use this as an opportunity to plug the lab because we've been going through some updates to our onboarding process recently and this just felt very topical for that so i like Here's the thing. We have a lab onboarding checklist that we look at. And this is first things first, get them access to everything that you use. That is the baseline. But you're right. There are more things to that. And as it comes to each person, you're going to want to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with that person to talk about their goals, responsibilities, expectations, working on any given project. You're also going to want to assign them tasks that work well with their skills and that are relevant to their experience and that are allowing them to build confidence in their role. You don't want to send them off the deep end right away. You want to do a slow roll into working on these projects. And like just me personally, I've been working on a lot of stuff behind the scenes at the lab just to make sure this is a seamless process all the way from automated workflows where you have an automated email that comes out with, well, here's some next steps. Here's everything that you need to do. Like I said, that onboarding checklist, making sure that the workflow of that checklist accurately matches how information should be revealed and exposed to the new person in the lab. There's a lot that goes into onboarding and it can go very wrong. Barry, like you said, it's never smooth. And just know that frequent communication is a good thing. And I'm not always the best at that, but I think that is what is going to help in those cases for onboarding new folks. Yeah. Okay. One more thing. That's it. One more thing. What's going on, Barry? Talking about automation, I've been playing with Power Automate, which is Microsoft tool, part of the Microsoft 365 ecosystem. And I've never really touched it until this week because I've never... You just don't have the time to sit down and just explore something new. I had a lot of deadlines this week. And as is the case, we've been talking about you know, diversity and stuff. As is the case, whenever I have a lot to do, I suddenly find I need to do everything else at the same <laughs> time. And so I lost pretty much an entire Wednesday morning playing with Power Automate. And actually, it's been able, it is now getting to the point where it's actually doing some useful stuff that I wanted to do. So actually, just with that last question, I, whenever, I, whenever we onboard have a new project, I always create a brand new project space in SharePoint for it to use. And I had a templated version of that, which kind of worked. Whereas now with Power Automate, I found I could do it more efficiently and update my SharePoint list and create links. But what's been the reason it's my one more thing really is not just because I've been geeking out on, on, on some coding is that it's yet another example of a tool that is nearly so good that it's bad because it does things just about right, but I still am going to have to go back and tinker with it. As an example, it will create my SharePoint space. It will create a SharePoint group now, an Office 365 group, but it won't automatically link it to Teams and create a channel. I have to then do it, do that extra, even though that should just be a thing. In my, in, I then get it to update a SharePoint list, which has a link of all of my live projects and it assigns it a status and stuff. But the link it gives, normally you have a, a, an alias for it so it can be just a simple name and the hyperlink lives under it as, as, as your underlined highlighted thing it doesn't do that it won't allow you to put an alias in so you get the entire link in there and i'm gonna to have to go back and put the alias in and it's just frustrating and the, the amount of googling i'm having to do until i hit a moment of realization that i could just ask chat gpt and then, so now I'm now in another loop of I'm trying to use Power Automate and then use ChatGPT to teach me how to use Power Automate. And it just feels like a really AI overloaded world that perhaps has maybe lost control and we should have some policy around to stop it over everything. Anyway, Nick, what's your one more thing? Oh, I could go a million directions with this. I mentioned to Blake last week that I had six different items on my one more thing. And now I'm picking and choosing something that 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 is going along with your one more thing. As long as we're talking about automation, I have some really like high importance automation tasking that I'm working on and I haven't touched it in a week and I'm forgetting everything that I need to do to make that automation work. And to give some perspective, this is not a simple automated workflow. This workflow has something like 30 something steps and these automations happen 
over a two week time period span. So it's a lot of, and they're referencing multiple different documents and multiple different, like I'm trying to automate a major pain point and to just put it down for a week. I I keep telling myself, I got to sit down and I haven't touched it since last Wednesday. I keep telling myself, I got to sit down and actually look into it and actually figure this out because it's going to have measurable impact for the things that I'm doing. And I just, it's, it's not necessarily the work. It's the thought process of how do I get this thing to work in the way that I want it to? Cause of, like you said, Barry, if you get just close enough, it's not going to be, it's almost going to cause you more rework to go back and fix those things than it would be to just get it right. And I'm trying to get it to the point where it works very similarly to how we have our show notes now. We don't have to do a whole lot of work on our show notes. Um, so that's where we're at with that. But I'm trying to get this very similar to that. Uh, yeah. And I can keep these other one more things for later. Mm-hmm. All right. That's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about BCIs, I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 205, where Blake and Elise break down what it's like to drive an exoskeleton using brain signals. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, wherever you're listening, just stop what you're doing. Just go leave us a five-star review, whatever platform it is. That's really helpful. Two, you can always tell your friends about us. That is the number one way in which we grow as a podcast is that word of mouth. And three, if you have the financial means to do you want to do it, you can always consider supporting us on Patreon. Just a buck gets you in the door for a bunch of different cool things. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk to you about hooking up to your brain and understanding your thoughts? You don't want to do that. But if you want to come chat about it anyway, come find me on social media. You can come and listen to me interview various amazing people around the Human Factors community on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. Yeah. Yeah.